Before getting into the message proper, just a reminder, uh, thinking of our introduction and song. Um, you know, we get together, we meet in the church, as the church, we look at scripture together, we hang out, we fellowship, etc. <clears throat> All of which is great, of course. No downside on any of that. However, we want to remind ourselves that at the end of the day, uh, the difference between a Christian and Christianity is a relationship with God through Christ. Yes. That we come here on a Sunday morning and we go away having some sense that I didn't connect with God through Christ. It's done by the power of the Holy Spirit, but that is the deal. So we don't want to be about rules. We don't want to be about somehow forms or uh, some, some kind of pretense in life. We really want to say at the end of the day, the beginning of the day as well, <clears throat> we live because Christ lives. And, you know, that's what uh, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Yes. So we want to make sure at the end of the day that what we take away is that encouragement in a relationship with Christ. And that's what we're inviting others to when we share the gospel with others. It's not a religion. It's not a particular local church. It's a relationship with the living God. So beginning and end of the day for us. Uh, on the message, I hope you have a study sheet, by the way. This will be a little different today. Uh, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is for the Lord. So this is Old Testament sort of ancient imagery. So if I was a Jew back in the day, let's say Solomon, the, the Proverbs are being written, and I want to make a decision, and I'm not, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure where to go or who to contact or whatever, but I need to make a decision. One of the ways I could go about that was by casting lots. And in our minds, if we thought about throwing dice, that'd probably be the closest thing we've got to it. But probably a stone or stones, particular shapes might have been marked. So I came to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm not sure what to do. I throw the lots. And by the way, those things land, I'm making my decision. So on a human scale, I'm saying, I don't know what to do. I throw the lot. I don't know what, how it's going to come out. I don't know what's going to happen when I cast those stones. But the text says, but God does. And it's not just that he has foreknowledge of what's going to happen, but he is absolutely in control of that as well. So there's no chance with God what appears, you know, sometimes Christians or popular culture, we talk about luck or chance or fate or things like that. Those things don't exist biblically. So God was in determining how the lot fell and the decisions that were coming from that. So to humanity, it looks like we don't know what's going to happen, but this assures us, but God's in the details on that. Uh, we're in a story this morning, which has to do with the throwing of the lots. So an entire nation's population, ethnic population, depended on how these lots were cast. Um, do you guys remember the last time lots are used in the scripture? In Acts 1. Yeah, the last time you see lots used by God's community is when the apostles are trying to figure out who should replace Judas. Once the Holy Spirit has come, you never see the lots cast in scripture again. We're not casting lots today, I guess is what I'm saying. So we pray, we ask for guidance, we, we trust God to lead us. We're not casting lots since the Spirit's been given. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Esther, and that's where we're going to be this morning, if you've got an app or a Bible, 
You can turn there. We're going to sort of hop, skip, and jump through that story in just a minute. But in that book, it was the casting of the lots that was behind this whole uh, desire, this whole attempt to basically uh, rid the world of the Jewish population. And so everything was hinging on the casting of the lots. We'll talk about that here at the end. Um, Esther is a lovely book. This is the third book in the All Scriptures Inspired series. So just a single message on books of the Bible that we haven't taught on before. And so Esther's the third one in this series. Esther is named, and guys, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background. So, so stay tuned. Uh, I, I won't lose you on too many details here, but then we'll get right into the story. So Esther is named for the heroine of the book. Esther is a Persian name and it means star. So it's a lovely name. And if you change the E to an A, you get a sense of uh, why it means star. So if Esther was Aster, what's an asteroid? It's a flaming star. What's astronomy? It's the study of stars. Well, that's what her name means. Esther means star. Her Hebrew name is also quite lovely. It's Hadassah. And that means a myrtle tree. And whether the thought is the loveliness of the tree, some think the shape of the fruit on the tree might resemble a star as well. That's a little unclear. It's a short story. It's only 10 chapters long. We're not sure who wrote it. Uh, so here's the details behind before we jump in. The story of Esther takes place in the Persian Empire during the reign of King Ahasuerus. He's called also Xerxes, a Greek name. So he ruled from 486 to 464 BC. So the story takes place, most of the story takes place about 475 BC. So just to give context, so Abraham's about 2000 BC, David's 1000 BC. The Jews are taken by the Babylonians into captivity 600 BC. And people like Zerubbabel, they went back, they left Persia. 538 BC, they went back to reestablish Israel in the land of promise. And some, some years future from our story also, uh, 458 and 445 BC, Ezra and Nehemiah are going to go back as well. So the story of Esther is sandwiched. It's after the end of the Babylonian captivity, and it's before Ezra and Nehemiah go back as well. So it's sandwiched between some other stories that we have quite a bit of information on. The ESV Study Bible says this as part of its introduction. The book of Esther is a story par excellent. It has virtually all the ingredients that people through the ages have most loved in a story. A beautiful, courageous heroine, a romantic love threat, a dire threat to the good characters, a thoroughly evil villain, suspense, dramatic irony, evocative descriptions of exotic places, sudden reversal of action, poetic justice, and a happy ending. So guys, what we do here this morning does no justice to the story of Esther, okay? So we're, we're going to run through it so we get sort of the overview, and then we'll talk about three things, three lessons that I think are primary things to take out of that. But if you don't read it, you simply cannot savor it. So their description of a story par excellent, if you listen or read a Jane Austen book and you're like, the dialogue is so crazy good, it's so sharp, it's so pointed, it's so spot on. Or if you read a play, an irony a play like Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest, you get how sharp, how incisive the literature is. Well, that's like Esther. When you read it, you realize, uh, as an example, 
this would be like a play. And by the way, you know, the Jews still remember this book and what happens in it every year. And they do so in a play. And it's written like a play. And so you see characters coming and going with opposite motives at the same time. And one person's plans being absolutely upended right before their plan could take place. Something entirely different happens. So the book just as literature, it's crazy good. It's so well put together. So you want to read it on your own. Or, you know, better yet, if you just want to close your eyes and listen to it, listen to it read on Scripture online. It's just a lovely, lovely story. So what we're going to do, I'm going to read parts of the text. I'm going to fill in the gaps. I'm just going to describe what's going on just so we can get through. I'm not reading 10 chapters, but we'll, we'll get through the story so we know what the big rocks are in the story. So the story begins when King Ahasuerus was throwing this lavish months-long party for his commanders. Then following that, there's a week-long party in the city of Susa at the capital itself. This is Esther 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, the Persian Empire was the broadest geographically of any of the ancient empires. Bigger than Rome, bigger than Greece, it was the biggest. So from modern India, it would go all the way through the Middle East to the Greek city-states, it would come around the Middle East, it would go all the way to Africa, North Africa, and Egypt, which is important because where the story goes. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, as the wine flowed and, and the celebration is going on, the king gets a bright idea and he orders his queen Vashti to be brought in. She's this lovely person. He's going to show her off to the assembled party. Well, she surprised everyone. She says, it's not happening. I'm not going. Tell him no. Well, in order to show the king's power and to discourage other women from rebellion in their own homes, Vashti was banished from the king's presence and was to be replaced by a woman of the king's choosing. So what they said is, we're going to show women they've got to stay in their place. They've got to be careful. We're going to now banish her but we're going to replace her intentionally. So we're going to do a search through the whole empire. We're going to bring the loveliest maidens. They're all going to go before the king one at a time. He's going to choose his favorite, and that's the new queen. That's who's going to replace Vashti. Well, they do the search, and a lovely young Jewish woman named Esther was among that group, and she, of course, won the king's favor, becoming queen in Vashti's place. This is Esther 2. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. Now, Esther had a cousin named Mordecai, and Mordecai was quite a bit older than her. Her parents had died. He was not only her cousin, but he raised her. So Mordecai would take up residence outside the king's palace so he could keep abreast of how Esther was doing. And also Haman, the king's counselor, this was a man of immense wealth. He was second only to the king in power and influence in the Persian Empire. He would come out from that same palace regularly and he used to walk before Mordecai. Now the king had given an order, kind of think of Joseph in Egypt. The king here had given an order that when Haman came through, you bowed to him. 
Well, Haman would walk before Mordecai and Mordecai wouldn't, wouldn't bother to bow. Never did, n- never would. This is Esther 6, or excuse me, 3 verses 5 and 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So to him, he says, it's not enough that I get revenge by doing something to him. I'm going to wipe out everyone that he's connected to, every Jew in the kingdom. Now, you know, sometimes in Scripture, it's these little things that are said, we talked about genealogies in First Chronicles, they're important. Uh, John Salehammer used to say, the text is the thing. It's not the history, it's not the story behind the text, it's the text is the thing. Well, the text makes sure that we understand something, and it's this. The conflict between Haman and Mordecai represented the ongoing intergenerational, we could say cosmic conflict between the people of God and their enemies because the text tells us Mordecai was a descendant from the tribe and family of Israel's king Saul. So he's from the same line as Israel's king Saul. Why is that important? Well, because King Saul had been ordered by God to destroy all the Amalekites in the land of promise 500 years ago from our story. 500 years prior, God told King Saul, wipe them out entirely. Saul did not obey the command. And so who is Haman? Haman is a descendant of King Agag, an Amalekite. So what you see in this story is the cosmic, intergenerational, ongoing conflict between God's covenant people and those who aren't is represented between Haman and Mordecai. So this isn't happenstance. It's not just that this one guy happens not to like another guy. This is part of God's cosmic struggle on earth today. You guys know it's easy. Uh, We're horizontal creatures, right? We tend to look at what's in front of us. But Esther, and especially the book of Daniel, they remind us that what we see going on in the world that we can touch or do something with, it's secondary in importance because what's really determining what's going on in the seen world is the unseen world. And that's what Esther's bringing up to some degree here at least. Well, after repeatedly casting lots for the best time to approach the king to destroy the Jews, that's what Haman is doing, he's casting lots. Uh, Haman convinced King Ahasuerus that the Jews were a troublesome people who should be eradicated from the kingdom for the betterment of the empire. Ahasuerus foolishly agrees And the date was set when the people in all the provinces of the empire would be given free reign to kill any and all Jews and to seize their wealth and property. And guys, this is something you see. uh, You see this in Daniel 6 also. Same empire, earlier king Darius. Darius was tricked by his counselors who hated Daniel. And they just want to get rid of Daniel. Well, the king loves Daniel. He can be counted on and and he does what's in the king's best interest, but the king is tricked. And that's exactly what happens here too. Ahasuerus makes a foolish decision based on Haman's recommendation. He has no idea where this thing goes. He was tricked, he was duped. And that's one of the themes that you'll see, we'll talk about in a minute, 
that in this story, it's not the strong who control the story and its outcome. It's in fact the weak. It's not the strong. Right here on the beginning, Ahasuerus, the most powerful man in the world, proceeds because he was tricked by an inferior. So this is a theme you see through the book as well. And also, uh, Haman told the king, hey, I'll pay you big money to get this job done. And I've incentivized, we're going to incentivize the population, the non-Jewish population, to do this because we're going to tell them, whoever you kill, you can take their wealth, their property, whatever you've got. So I'm going to incentivize the king and we're going to incentivize the population to kill the Jews because they'll get whatever they can take. This is Esther 3. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king, satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So at the end of that year, this thing's going to be carried out. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king, imagine just the irony here, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. They've made their royal edict, They're, they sit down to have a nice drink, and the city around them is in uproar because suddenly the command has come out. All the Jews here are supposed to be wiped out at the end of the year. Well, Mordecai sent word to Esther. So Mordecai's out. Esther's in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on. Mordecai sent word to Esther to approach the king and ask him to revoke the order. Now, the texts are clear that once the order's been given, it cannot be repealed. It cannot be revoked. But Esther tells Mordecai through a messenger that she, if she should approach the king without being summoned, she could be executed. So this is Esther 4. Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. It's been a month. I haven't seen him. He hasn't called for me. This is Mordecai's famous reply. Mordecai sends back to her, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai, the uncle, says, hey, don't think you're going to be immune. You're a Jew in the kingdom. You're not immune from this order. And isn't it possible that this is the time and the place, this is, you're meant to be here. Like the lots being cast, you are where you should be, when you should be, that this isn't mere happenstance. By the way, this is about as close as you get to an acknowledgement of God in the book of Esther. We'll talk about that too. 
Well, Esther, along with Mordecai and all the Jews who lived in the capital, fasted in preparation for Esther to seek relief from the king. She courageously approaches the king, though uninvited, and the king receives her gladly. So spares her life, says, come on in, we'll talk. This is Esther 5. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. So Esther doesn't say immediately what's going on. This heightens the tension, the dramatic tension in the story. What she does instead is she invites the king and Haman to a lunch. And then she's going to invite them a second day to a lunch again. And what follows was this comedy of ironic circumstances. King Ahasuerus had Haman, who hates Mordecai, who's planning his murder. He has Haman publicly exalt Mordecai. So he has Haman lead Mordecai on a horse, king's horse, king's cape, and yelling out, thus will it be to the man whom the king desires to honor. Haman has to lead Mordecai, his enemy, through the city, saying, this is the guy the king wants to honor. Now, this happened on the day that Mordecai, excuse me, that Haman went to the king to ask for permission to murder Mordecai. You see what I mean about this? Uh, Haman's coming out hoping to kill Mordecai. Mordecai's coming in, and the king says, exalt him. And it's like, wow, that didn't go the way I thought. Later, the irony continues when Esther had the king and Haman to a private lunch. This is the second lunch. She informed the king that Haman intended to have her slain because she also was a Jew. So this is Esther 7. Again, if you could see this as a play, this would be the thing because it's, it's dark on one hand. It's supposed to be funny and ironic on the other. The king rose in it. So the king has just been informed. The king, Haman... And um, Esther are in the lunch. She says, this guy's out to kill me because I'm a Jew. And the king, it says, rose in his wrath from wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So when the king comes back, all he sees is Haman. It looks like he's assaulting Esther, but he's tripping over himself. He has such angst, hoping to spare his life. The king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, remember the guy the king intended to honor, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I think I forgot to say earlier, the reason the king wanted to honor Mordecai was because, again, in, in the, the providential arrangement of the story, Mordecai happened to hear these two guards plotting the king's assassination. So he told Esther, who, who warned the king, and the king's life was spared. So on the night before he tells Haman to honor Mordecai, he can't sleep. And so he gets up, it must have been late in the night, very early in the morning, and he's just having his own annals read to him. 
And he happens, he happens to hear that a guy named Mordecai had been responsible for sparing his life. And so he asks the guys, well, uh, what did we do for him? And they say, well, nothing. And he says, well, who's around in the court that I can ask a question of? And they say, well, Haman's here. And so he calls Haman in and he says, hey, Haman, what should I do to honor the guy that I want to honor? And Haman says to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? So when he tells the king how to honor someone, he doesn't realize he's, he's lining himself up to do those very things for Mordecai. So again, it's more of that, the literary, and we're not saying the story's made up, but the way all these pieces fit is just, it's hilarious, but not for Haman. Yeah. Uh, Queen Esther was given the property of Haman. Mordecai was given Haman's authority in the king's name. So it's a total reversal. Those who were going to be wiped out are now the ones in the ascendancy. At Esther's request, the king gave permission for the Jews throughout the empire to defend themselves when the time for their annihilation arrived, and they did so, saving the Jewish population throughout the empire. The destruction meant for the Jews was visited on their enemies instead. It's interesting, too, that the story's clear that the Jews who were given permission to do to their enemies what their enemies would have done to them, the story's clear they took none of the wealth of the people they slew. In other words, it was as if they were saying, we're out to defend our lives, not to accrue more wealth at the cost of others. We're not like the people that would have taken our lives. We're defending our lives. We're not after the wealth. So this is Esther 9. Uh, Mordecai, he's in the ascendancy now, he's where Haman was, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year. So the 13th day, they would have been wiped out. Instead, their enemies are wiped out. So Mordecai says those two days following the day that the lot would have ended our existence those next two days, year by year, you're to celebrate because the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And that's how the Feast of Purim began. The Feast of Purim, it comes from the, the Persian Pur, which means the lot. So the Feast of Purim, it's not in the law. It was instituted here, sort of late in the Old Testament period, as a way of celebrating the Jews' deliverance from their enemies in that day and time. It's still celebrated mid-February to mid-March every year. And again, if you look this up online, you'll see that it's, it's basically there's a play that's been created. The kids all have a part, and they, they, uh, when Haman's name is going to be said, they, they boo and they hiss, so Haman's name can't be heard. But anyway... It's, it's kind of, it's, it's theater and spectacle. So, so that's the story. So that's, that's the rough and tumble, hop, skip and jump through. You read on your own because it's much better to either read or listen to. So three things, three big things. The biggest of those is this, uh, the points I want to make. God preserves his people and his promises. God preserves his people and his promises. Uh, last week we looked at First Chronicles and we saw this group of people that were back in the land of promise. They were trying to honor God. Remember they, were, they rebuilt the altar and the temple and the city and they were really back where God wanted to bless them. And we said they were faithful but it was a tough go and so God was saying through First Chronicles 
it looks smaller than you thought. It's very hard work that you're about. But don't worry, you're pursuing God and God is with you in this work. You're being faithful and God's faithful to you. He's helping you in this work. But today in Esther, we're in a book that doesn't once mention God or faithfulness to the covenant, but which nevertheless shows that God was at work to preserve his people and his promises, even when his people seemed oblivious to him. The book of Esther was a sideline in some people's minds. This is true in the Jewish world, and it was true in the early church as well. They weren't sure it was scripture. And in primarily because God is not mentioned in the book. So we, we say God is not mentioned specifically in the book, but he is everywhere in the story. It's a story of God's sovereign, providential care for his people when it doesn't look like his people are taking notice of him. And that's really the thing. It's that God had made promises and it didn't depend on the Jewish faithfulness to accomplish them. There were things God was going to do. He'd said, I'm going to do these things. And he was going to do them whether his people were faithful in that time or not. And again, Esther sticks out because it's sandwiched between groups that left Persia to go back to the land of promise in faithfulness to God. And here's this story right in the middle in which God is not even mentioned once. It's this anomaly, but I think particularly it's there to show us it's always God at work bringing about his program. It's always God sovereignly at work, providentially at work to accomplish his things. Now consider this. Had the plans of Naaman, or excuse me, Haman been fulfilled the Jewish race would have been wiped out for all practical purposes. And again, this is where the geography of the Persian Empire comes in. All major populations of Jews lived within the Persian Empire. So if this is carried out, all of, of any size Jewish population would have been wiped out. The Jews as a group would have ended because they all live within the Persian Empire. Now, think of what that means, the implications for that. Uh, what would happen to the promises God made? Uh, you know, you start in Genesis 3.15 with Eve. You know, one of your sons, your seed's going to destroy the, the enemy, Satan. But then you get, well, now it's going to be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And if the Jews are gone, the promises God made are over. And there is no messianic king coming because the line from which he was said he would come would be gone entirely. So, again, God's nowhere named in Esther, but he's found everywhere. Contrast this. A 538 when Zerubbabel and the first group of Jews returned to the land of promise. It was a tough time and what they were doing didn't look very significant. Because some of the text is clear. Some of the people had seen the temple of Solomon. And when they saw the new temple being laid up, they were like, this is not going to be like Solomon's temple. But God spoke through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, and he said, no, guys, this is what I'm doing. This is my temple. I claim this. And I claim this work, and it looks like a day of small things to you, but this is what I'm doing. So a faithful group, and God encourages them and says, nope, I'm with you in the work. We're doing this together. Or you go later under Ezra and Nehemiah after and by the way, some of the people that would have gone back with um, Ezra and Nehemiah, they were alive, they were part of the story, the time of Esther. Because they leave just a mere 20 years later to go back, less, less than 20 years for some of them. 
So you've got this story sandwiched by groups who are faithfully leaving Persia to go back to the land of promise to honor God there. And you know, guys, it's interesting. There was a Jewish population from the Babylonian captivity until the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Those people, the descendants of these people, lived in modern Iraq until they were finally pushed out within our lifetimes from this group. They never went back. Now that's the thing. You know, Jews have been spread since. There's reasons for that all over the world. But Jews were called to honor God in part by living in the land of promise. This group is saying we're content to live in a pagan land of idolatry we're not worshiping God at the temple. We're not going to Jerusalem for the feasts. And we're okay with that. That's, the, that's all from the story of Esther. It's a group that's not really paying attention to God or God's things. Uh, uh, this brings up, um, at the time, so this is 20, uh, 2,400 years ago, you know, you're talking about this um, effort to wipe out the Jewish population. You say, why is that? So back in the day, we say, well, there was promises made. But guys, you know that in the age of the church, Jewish populations have, have summarily, routinely been persecuted no matter where they live in the world for the last 2,000 years. And you say, why is that? Because the church is the thing today, right? Ephesians 2, this is the work God's doing today. It's, it's not Jews or Gentiles, it's one new body, Jews and Gentiles together. And so we'd say primarily today the spiritual battle that's raging on the earth is against Christians and the church because that's God's habitation, that's God's work. So what does it say, what might it infer, this is a weak argument because it's not directly biblical, but what might it infer that the Jews keep getting persecuted no matter where they go? It might infer that God still has something to do with the Jews in the future, don't you think? So, you know, if you just go back to World War II, during World War II, Hitler and Germany, like Haman, sought to wipe out the Jewish population throughout Europe. And to say, even to say the number, it sounds um, minimalist. Six million Jews perished. That's, you know, that's an estimate. Multiple, multiple millions of people died in the war, of course. But six million Jews perished in that war by Hitler because they wanted to kill Jews. And by the way, if you watch a movie like The Monuments Men, this is no different than what Haman wanted to do. Because what did the Germans do with the wealth of the Jews they murdered? They took it all. They stole it all. They stole the art. They stole the wealth. <laughs> There's stuff scattered throughout Europe and the world today that was stolen from Jewish families that were murdered in World War II. This was no different. Guys, this is the same spirit. This is the same thing that would have occurred in Esther's life. It happened to millions of Jews in World War II. Same spirit, same spiritual energy behind what was going on. Uh, the spirit of the Amalekites, the hatred of Haman, the spiritual energy to harm people integral to God's plans and promises was alive and well. And this is of interest. Um, you see God uh, upending things for his purposes. There had been talk, Zionism as a concept about a homeland for Jews had been talked about sort of seriously off and on from the 1800s. And the Balfour Declaration made in Britain was a famous statement in which the British government would look on favor with the establishment of a Jewish nation. But nothing was really moving, nothing was happening 
until the world gains some emotional empathy for the Jews because of the decimation in World War II. And so what happened immediately after that? In May of 1948, what happens? The nation of Israel is reborn because the UN, the nations of the world say, you know what, they need a place. And so we're going to give it to them. And where do they put them? They put them back in the land of promise. Now guys, there hadn't been a Jewish nation in the land of promise since 70 AD until 1948. So what was meant for evil and what was grossly evil, the destruction of all those lives of the Jews had the secondary, if you will, impact of moving the nations of the world to say, Israel needs a homeland. These people need a place they can live in which they're the majority. They're not being oppressed by others. And so they got it. It came out of that terrible, terrible tragedy. A Hitler like Haman died an ignoble death and has no living heritage we're aware of, while the Jewish nation has thrived and flourished, albeit not yet in faith. I want to say, too, if you want to read some interesting history, read about um, uh, the war of independence, the war of, that Israel, um, in 1948, this is kind of similar to Esther, too. The Brits who, who were overseeing the Middle East since World War I, the Brits said we're getting out on a certain day. On this day, on the calendar, we, we're done overseeing Palestine. And the UN said Israel can have their own nation. But guys, here's the deal. <laughs> Israel's surrounded by Muslim neighbors who hate them. So on the day that the British mandate for Palestine ended, the surrounding Muslim nations invaded Israel. They, they didn't get a breath. This would be like the baby's born. We're going to kill it today on the day of its birth. And what happened? And what happened? Well, Israel defeated all their enemies. Israel that was a nation, they were born on that day. Israel defeated all of the armies that were surrounding them. And you know what's happened in every war Israel's had since? Israel's been victorious in every war since. Israel has taken land and property. In fact, they've given the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt after they took it as well. That all these efforts... Now, why do we say... A friend of mine visited Israel years ago... And he was talking to an Israeli pilot. And the, the pilot was bragging about the Israeli Air Force. And I, maybe this was 67 or 63, I'll forget. But the, the Israelis had shot down all these enemy aircraft and they lost zero. And the Israeli uh, pilot was uh, bragging to Frank about how good they were. <laughs> Frank was like, you think that's all it was? That this, Frank was trying to help him see this was divine intervention. This was divine providence. But he, they're saying, we're just really good. Like maybe it's more than that. So, so even, uh, uh, so, so God's, why are the Jews persecuted even in the age of the church? Because God's not done with the Jews. That's why. In Romans 11, it says the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God's not changing his mind about the promises he's made to the Jews. And it says in Romans 11, 26, all Israel will be saved. That there's a coming day when King Jesus returns to the earth and Israel as a nation is raised up again. And Jesus as the descendant of David, the son of David, is ruling from Jerusalem over the kingdom. You know, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, that's going to happen. And the Jews are going to be in the middle of it. You see this in Ezekiel, lots in Isaiah as well. 
but it's because God's purposes for the Jews have not been concluded. They're still being persecuted, but God's preserving them sovereignly, providentially, even when they're not aware of it. Uh, two other things. The weak may be strong. This story advances on the backs of the weak, not the strong. I mentioned that Ahasuerus was tricked by an inferior to get this whole ball rolling. Queen Vashti says no to the most powerful man on earth. And if she doesn't say no, there's no story. There's no replacement for her. None of this occurs. Mordecai's not at the palace. Esther's not at the palace. Nothing happens. The queen, who has no political power, says no to the most powerful man on earth. And that starts the whole ball rolling. Like Vashti, Esther has no inherent power. She can only seek to influence her husband. And yet her influence is what, on the human level, saves the Jewish population. Esther. Mordecai has no official power, but he overcomes Haman, taking his place and his wealth. The weak become strong. The Jews are a minority presence in the Persian Empire, and yet they annihilated their enemies who would have annihilated them. This sounds like 19. 48 and following, frankly. Esther and Mordecai, and this is, this is on the application for us. When you read the story, it's a, it's a fascinating, quick story, and it's neat, and there's heroism, and these people are standing up, the weak are standing up to the strong. Did they know they were in a story? When they were living this, did they know they were in a story? Did they know we would read their story and sit back and and sip our wine with the Hashuaris and say, you know, ain't life grand. They don't know they're in a story, do they? They're just living it out. They're living it out. They didn't feel strong. They didn't feel powerful or sure of themselves. They acted anyway. They acted anyway and the weak became strong. Our salvation, uh, I think Mark mentioned this. Friends, our salvation is born not initially out of power, but out of weakness. Our salvation, our atonement comes through weakness and death, not through resurrection. Your sins are covered not by Jesus' resurrection. They're covered by his death, Amen. his blood, his life for yours. Now, the resurrection is power. The resurrection shows atonement is complete. But atonement was made through weakness of death. The resurrection now is proof the atonement's been made and Christ is the victor. But it accompl it's accomplished initially through weakness, not through power. And I say this for this reason. Um, most of us don't feel powerful. And frankly, most of us aren't powerful, period. Anyway, which is fine. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So to the president of the United States, to, to Putin in Russia, God says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of God's things can be done through human energy or human potential or any of that. It's, it's God or it doesn't happen. Today it's the power of the Holy Spirit or it doesn't happen. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-27 says in part, a God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chooses the weak. The weak in the story of Esther are the ones that gain strength. God chooses the weak. Why does he do that? That no human being might boast in the presence of God. That when you and I see God's work done, we say God did that, we didn't. We couldn't. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have the, the gospel and the life of Christ by the Spirit. We have it in mortal bodies that, like mine, fall apart. You get old over time. You're in a cracked pot. You're in this jar that's made of earth. Remember, 
Adam's a man of dust. We're men of dust. We're, we're women of dust. Why is that? Well, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That God's delighted to use weak vessels because then the vessels say, wow, God, that was you. That wasn't us. We give you honor. We give you glory, not to ourselves. And the last thing I'll say is to act in courage. This is, this is a, a similar to the weak becoming strong, but the weak have to have courage in order to act. So if I'm constrained or controlled by fear, I don't act. I, I say I'm weak. I can't affect outcomes. I can't change anything. So I don't act. But the weak need courage to act in what God's doing and how he intends to use them. Uh, Esther feared death, but was willing to approach the king. Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, and he knew Haman could do him wrong. He, he didn't know how far he'd take it, but he knew Haman could do him wrong. Jews throughout the kingdom had to take up arms to defend themselves against the people around them. They are a small minority in a great big pool of people. God was at work, but courage was required of those who were part of his plan for deliverance. It's easy to admire courage in a story. It's a different thing to live it out for ourselves in our, in our small corners of the world. Consider just a couple examples. The Reformation gained traction when a lowly monk in Germany made a public declaration of complaints against the papacy. This was the, this was the power center on the earth in the day, the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church. And the Reformation is what followed. Uh, the slave trade in the British Empire was considered uh, something that was so entrenched it would never go away. But a small group of committed Christians pursued it, pursued it, pursued it, and, and unbelievably the British slave trade in the British Empire was ended. In the American South in 1955, the civil rights movement gained steam when a lone black woman refused to give up the bus sheet seat she had paid for. Now... Um, Martin Luther, William Wilberforce, and Rosa Parks weren't trying to be heroes, and they didn't know the outcome of their actions, but they acted anyway. I was reading about Rosa Parks. <clears throat> she said, uh, I was tired, and I was ticked. <laughs> I was angry. I'd paid for my seat, and more white passengers got on, and the conductor comes back. A conductor who, by the way, had left her in the rain intentionally before, said, Get, give your seat up. And she had paid for it. And she said no. And of course she was arrested and she's famous to this day for simply saying no. No to something that was unjust. Guys, here's a question for us. What are you willing to suffer for? What are you willing to suffer for? And what are we willing to suffer for to the point of death? What are we willing to die for? Now, we live in, most of us live in comfortable lives. I know people suffer, and I don't mean to minimize anything along that line. And many of us can suffer hard, hard things. But we live in a first world nation with wealth and air conditioning and food. You get the point? It's like, if life can be cushy on the earth, that, that's us now, isn't it? What, what are we willing to, to lose? What comforts are we willing to lose? What are, we, what are we willing, faced with this choice of dying for? And I ask it in that way because here's the thing. If you don't know what you'll suffer for and if you don't know what is worth your dying for, you probably don't know what you're living for. 
If you don't know what you're willing to die for, you probably don't know why you're living or what the purpose of your life is. And no kidding, what, uh, decades ago, I was I, I, meeting with the Lord early in the morning. I think it was early winter. And, I, and uh, I am just down, um, you know, spiritually, emotionally. And, and I had a blessed life, by the way. I had a lovely wife and I had lovely <laughs> children. And uh, not, not, because, not because of anything like that. But I was just down and I prayed and I just said, Lord, I need to have a reason for living and a reason for dying. And the radio was on in the kitchen and there was a Bible program on. And I'd no sooner said that prayer than the Bible teacher says, the truth is worth living for and the truth is worth dying for. I said, okay, Lord, I, I hear you. What are, we, what are we willing to suffer for? What are we willing to die for? What are we living for? Those are just good basic line questions. What am I living for? What's worth me suffering for? You know, if I put myself in Esther's story, what am I willing to do? At what risk to myself? Or guys, this, is, this could be income, popularity. This could be being misunderstood. I mean, this, this could go a host of different ways. What are we willing to be misunderstood over? It takes courage to act in virtue and faith when virtue and faith are despised and in the minority. It takes courage to stand up for others who can't stand up for themselves. It takes courage to face defeats all around and still proclaim what you know to be true and right. It takes courage. That's what you see in Esther. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's a good, that's a good. Remember in Esther, there's no sense of we're doing all these things in God's name. But for us, we say, no, Christ is our savior. He's died for my sins. He's risen for my justification. We have the Holy Spirit. He's at work in the world today. And we get to be a part of that. We're not living blind. We're living with eyes open. We know who we belong to. We know what we're a part of. God is with us. Why should I be afraid? Romans 8 says, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? And even if we lose our lives in Christ's cause, it says that we are more than conquerors. Guys, our end is to be with Christ. Where we're heading is we're going to be with Christ. Everything before that is just a preview. So we live the preview in light of our end, where we're going. Esther's a book that calls us to act in courage, even in weakness, as circumstances call for, knowing that God controls the lot. God controls the outcome. So we can afford to act and live in faith. Okay, I've gone a little long, but would you rise and let's read from 2 Corinthians 12. This is one of the best known passages in the Bible on God being pleased to work through the week. Uh, read with me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am 